The average life expectancy in America is about 77 to 78 years. It's not that long in the scope of eternity. And yet, for a short lifetime of sins, an unbeliever has to spend forever and ever in hell. Now, how can that be fair? Well, this is a question that Christians have wrestled with for the past 2,000 years, and one that we're going to do our best to make sense of today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, and I have some bad news for you. Marty Sampson has left the faith. Now I know what you're thinking. That's awful! And you're also probably thinking, who is Marty Sampson? Well, Marty Sampson is one of the lead singers of the popular Hillsong worship group. Now, you may have never heard of Marty Sampson's name before, but if you've attended a church in the past 10 years, chances are that you've sang some of his songs. Songs like, All I Need Is You, Tell the World, Take It All. Uh, Those are some of the songs that he wrote. His voice is present on many of Hillsong's albums and, and many of its most famous songs from the past 20 years, up until, that is, 2019 whenever he announced that he is no longer a Christian. Time for some real talk, Samson wrote in a now-deleted Instagram post. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. And then he also stated on the platform that Christianity is just not for him anymore. I'm going to skip over most of it as he goes through all of his problems with the Christian faith, but there's this one particular part that I want to talk about today. It's where he says this on his Instagram post. He said, How can God be love? yet send 4 billion people to a place, all because they don't believe. No one talks about it. Now, let me break down that sentence for you a little bit. When Marty Sampson says, a place, he's referring to hell. And then he says, no one even talks about it. Now, whenever I read that, I thought, what an idiotic statement. I mean, people have been talking about hell for thousands of years. The church has wrestled with this issue, wrestled with this with people for its entire existence, as long as the church has been around. I've read entire books on the subject. But according to Marty Sampson, no one talks about it. It's an absolutely false and and honestly just a stupid thing to say. And so to help to prove Marty Sampson wrong, we're going to talk about hell today. And I'm not going to be gloomy or morbid or intentionally scary. Um, (laughs) I kind of did that a little bit, uh, not trying to be scary, but in our episode last month, uh, that was about Abraham's bosom. In that episode, we went through a lot of the different Greek words for hell and got a little bit more detailed about it. I'm not even going to do that today. I'm not trying to be frightening. Uh, Jesus did say that hell is something worth being afraid of. But what I'm not going to do today is try to get into the specifics of what hell is like. I want to go through some of the common philosophical objections to hell. Things like, how could a loving God create a place of eternal torment? So today, I'm going to give you six common objections to hell and teach you how to respond to them. Now, every now and then you're going to hear the furnace, uh, or the air conditioner, I guess I should say. You're going to hear that kick on every now and then. I'm recording another episode here from 
another episode from the basement, another episode in a, in a little bit different place for me. I'm sitting in the dark with my computer at a pool table um, recording this. And so this is just another one of those episodes where you're going to hear some random sounds in the background. And I just can't really do anything about that. But um, anyway, I hope it's not too distracting. So let's talk about, let's start today in Revelation 19. Jesus returns to the earth in Revelation 19 at the at the end of the tribulation. And in this chapter, the armies of the Antichrist are obliterated, okay? And then here it also gives the destiny of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Revelation 19, starting at verse 20, John wrote, Then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army, talking about uh, Jesus there. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf, with the with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And so it says that the people who die at the return of Christ, they go where every sinner goes when they die, to hell. But only the Antichrist and the false prophet get immediately thrown into something called the lake of fire, which is an even worse fate, and we'll talk more about that. So Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, it kicks off, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So what is the abyss? Well, I, I believe it's hell, um, and I don't believe Satan and his demons actually want to be there, okay? Despite the, the cartoons that you might have seen growing up or some of the cultural representations of the devil uh, being like in a throne in hell, I don't think de- the devil actually does that. I don't think he actually wants to be in hell. The demons don't want to go there. Um, when, when Jesus had an interaction with a demon-possessed person, the demons begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss, it said, uh, this abyss, it opened up earlier in Revelation, and there was a horde of, of these locust-like creatures, but they had scorpion tails that came flying out, so they are something that's naturally from this place. There's a, there's a story where there's a demon-possessed man. He came running out to Jesus, and he, he just fell before Jesus, and he says, that it's the demon speaking, they say, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? So, I mean, from all that, we can surmise that the destiny of demons is that they will be in torment, too, at, at an appointed time. Their time is coming. They will be thrown into into hell or the, the abyss, uh, we could say. Uh, now, whether we were just reading from Revelation 20, whether they're thrown into the abyss with Satan at that time or whether they're thrown into the lake of fire with the Antichrist, it, it doesn't actually say right there in Revelation. I think they're just going to go wherever Satan's thrown. Um, but it doesn't say right there where they're put. But at one time or another, eventually, they are going to be placed in the torment of hell for forever and ever. It says in Revelation 20.10, that after Satan's been in the abyss for a thousand years, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Revelation 20.10 it says eventually the devil, and we can assume all his demons too, they're eventually put into this place called the Lake of Fire, where, as it said, they're tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil himself is finally placed there. And I have to confess, I I, I don't really feel any sympathy 
at hearing those words, tormented day and night forever and ever. I can't, I can feel sympathy for people who go there. But to be honest, I don't feel any for the Antichrist or the devil or the false prophet because they themselves caused so many others to go to this place. Um, let me let me just step aside from this. We'll come back to this in a second. I just want to step aside and, and just tell a personal story for a moment because um, this is something that I think of when I read these verses. And um, it's just a personal thing that happened to me what, uh, about a demon-possessed person that I once interacted with, Okay. So if you don't want to hear about this, or if that's a little bit too much for you, you can go ahead and skip on a couple minutes, you know, on the podcast and skip over this part. I'm just going to give you that warning. It's a little scary. If it's a little too much for you, if you don't like hearing about that kind of stuff, just skip ahead a few minutes. But um, anyway, years ago, I'm thinking this was like 2015. There was a demon-possessed girl, and she visited the church where I was youth pastor, okay? And this was on like, it wasn't a Sunday, it was like a Tuesday afternoon. And the I was the only minister there at the time, so I, I you know I didn't originally I didn't know she was demon possessed. Okay, at the start of the conversation, but I had a talk with her. She just showed up. She just asked if she could pray. She wanted to go into the sanctuary and pray. No one was even there, and we we're like, okay. Uh, me and the, the church secretary just let her go in and pray. Just was a kind of seemed harmless young lady. Um, just wanted to have a place to spend a little bit of time with God, and we said sure. And then afterwards, um, she asked if she could, I guess, talk to a minister. So the secretary brought her to me, and I talked with her for about 45 minutes. Um, and, and I wanted to help her, but she did not want any help. So her, over the course of this conversation, it, you know, she came to acknowledge, she says, that I, she was demon-possessed. And she told me the story of how she got possessed by demons. And I won't even get into all that. But the main point is she didn't want the demons to leave because she felt like they protected her. And um, I tried to convince her that this was something she did not want controlling her, being inside of her, um, possessing her. You know, I tried to convince her of this, but she had no interest in being set free. You know, I wish I could say I prayed over her and the demons just left anyway. You know, I've prayed over people who were demon-possessed before. I think all the other times, that's what happened. We prayed for the person. They were set free. That didn't happen this time. Uh, she didn't want the demons gone. So this was a bizarre conversation because it's like I was trying to talk to the girl, but it felt like the demon was just getting in between us and wouldn't let us have our conversation. And so I was trying to explain to her why she wanted this demon gone. And, and I was trying to explain what the destiny of Satan and the demons was. And, and the, de- the demon told me its plan was to just ask for God's forgiveness on Judgment Day, to ask God's forgiveness for joining Satan's rebellion. <laughs> it, it told me God was so loving that God would even forgive Satan if Satan repented. So in response to that, I just pulled out my Bible. I had an NIV study Bible sitting right on my desk, and I just pulled... Actually, it was open right to Revelation 20 because I had just been working on a Sunday school for my youth Sunday school class, and we were going through the book of Revelation. So this was 2015. That's whenever we went through Revelation. And and I had been preparing a, a Sunday school lesson for this chapter right here. So I just opened it up right there. And I said, actually, I already know Satan's future. And I said, Satan will not repent. And Satan and the demons are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And I read those same verses out loud to the girl, the the ones that I just read to you a few minutes ago. Okay. I read them out loud to the girl. I read these verses where it said, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. And I read those verses straight out of my Bible to this woman. And now up until this point, our conversation had actually, it'd been very calm. Okay. Despite how (laughs) bizarre the situation was, like there was no yelling going on. There was no anger in the room. We were having just a very surprisingly casual conversation over all this stuff that she was going through. But the moment I started reading the word of God, the Bible to this demon possessed girl, as I was reading about the future of the demons, everything changed. She jumped up. She screamed. She covered her ears. She yelled, stop saying that. Okay. So this demon inside of her, it got really agitated whenever I started talking about its destiny. And so that's something I always think of whenever I read those verses. And, you know, based on what the the demon was saying, would God actually forgive a demon if it truly repented? You know, I have no idea. But also, I don't have to waste time talking about what would happen or could happen. Because the Bible already tells us what will happen. The Bible says that Satan and his demons, they will spend an eternity in a place called the Lake of Fire. And I use this, uh, you know, I use this line in the previous episode about hell. I'm going to say it again. The lake of fire is the destiny of the devil, the fallen angels, the antichrist, the false prophet, those who take the mark of the beast, the wicked dead, and most of the people that you know. You see, most of the people you know will probably end up at the lake of fire. And it's important for you to know that because our witness that is their best chance at avoiding that fate. The fate spoken of in Revelation 20, 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Those verses are talking about the great white throne. This is the judgment for unbelievers. It's only people who are going to hell. There is only one judgment handed out here, guilty. Now, this is different from the judgment seat of Christ. That's a judgment for believers. That happens on your way into heaven. But the great white throne judgment is at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. You know, some people have this idea that whenever you die, you just, you show up in a line and there's an angel who like looks in a book for your name. And if you're not in it, then you go this way to hell. If you are in it, you go this way to heaven. And, you know, that's the idea that people get. That comes more from cartoons. It's not the biblical idea. Okay. From what I can tell, actually, if someone dies without Jesus, they just immediately drop into hell, you know, and they stay there until the great white throne judgment. And then after that, they're placed in the lake of fire for forever. Okay. But they they don't even have to go through a whole searching for the name thing. Like when you die, if you don't have Jesus in your heart, you immediately drop into hell. It's as Jesus said, he who doesn't believe is condemned already. They don't need to be like found guilty before going to hell because you're already guilty by default if you're a sinner. Revelation 20, 12, it tells us, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So why does it say the books were opened here? Well, these are books kept in heaven of records, basically, of our actions our good and our bad actions. Whenever we do a good work, it's recorded in the book. When we do a bad work, it's recorded in the book. So whether you're at the judgment seat of Christ or at the great white throne, everyone does have a judgment day where your books are opened. Okay. And that should make us reflect. You know, Jesus said even a cup of cold water in his name is recorded in those books. 
If you generously give even a cup of cold water, it's written down. And so at the judgment seat of Christ, that's where rewards are given out. And and that's given out just to save people for their good works. They're given rewards. You know, there's we could do a whole lesson just on that. Um, maybe we will another time, but we're not discussing that today. We're, I'm talking about the judgment for the unbelievers, and this is the great white throne judgment. So the last book opened in the judgment is the book of life. And if your name's not written in that book, it says you spend eternity in the lake of fire. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, as you hear that, if you have any questions about how death and hell, how they can be thrown into the lake of fire, go back to episode 36. That's where we explain that. And and that's what led me to wanting to do this episode today. So for the purposes of this lesson, I might use the phrases hell or lake of fire interchangeably, only because they are two different things, but they all end up at the same place eventually anyway. So I'm using them all interchangeably today. Now, something else we learned in those verses, uh, it said something about the second death. And you might have heard that and thought, well, what is that all about? Well, everyone has at least one first birth and our first death. You know, just our natural birth and our natural death. So if you're a Christian, you have two births, but only one death. See, Christians have two births because you have your physical birth, but also whenever you become a Christian, that's called being born again, which is talked about in John 3. Jesus said you must be born again. You know, some people say, um, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-again Christians, meaning they, they, you know, some people identify as a Christian, but they're like, well, I'm not one of those wackos about it. <laughs> you know, I'm not all in. Uh, I, you know, I... Thinking that that's more reasonable or something, or just to say, you know, I'm not totally devoted to God. So they say, well, I'm not one of those born again Christians. Well, you want to be because Jesus said, if you're not born again, you're not going to heaven. So when you become a Christian saved, you have a second birth. So Christians have two births, but only one death. You know, your, your physical death is the only death you'll ever have. Now, if you don't become a Christian, you're in a little bit different shoes. You're you have one birth and two deaths. You have the physical birth and the physical death. But the Bible says being cast into the, into the lake of fire is the second death. So now let's go through some objections. Because I've kind of spent the first, I guess, 20 minutes or so here just setting up the um, s- setting up the verses that I wanted to give objections to today. So we kind of explained about hell, the lake of fire, what Revelation says about judgment and all that. So we've kind of gone over that. Well, now let's come up, let's go talk about some objections that people have to that. There are believers and even unbelievers who have um, disagreements about these verses, whether they're saying what they sound like they're saying or whether they, or whether they could possibly mean something different, especially because Revelation is one of those books where it's, it's heavily symbolic, and so a lot of the symbols are debated uh, as to what they actually mean. Hell is one of the most hotly debated arguments between Christians and even against Christians. A lot of atheists who don't even believe this stuff in the, in the first place, they do have some very specific arguments against the doctrine of hell. So Christians themselves debate about it or have various theories or sometimes even alternatives to what, what I would say the scripture plainly says. 
And then you have these people like Marty Sampson, they use this to attack Bible-believing Christians. So one alternative theory that has been proposed is called annihilationism. And this is the doctrine that hell is just an immediate destruction of the body, that it's not an ongoing torment, um, that you just are annihilated. Okay, this is objection number one, annihilationism. And this is the majority view among what we might call the more liberal Christians. Um, and when I say liberal Christians, I don't mean liberal politically, but I mean liberal theologically. Although if you are liberal theologically, you tend to be politically liberal as well. But generally, it's the more liberal Christians um, who, who tend to embrace annihilationism. And I would say even, you know, who end up falling away from the faith a lot when you embrace a liberal theology. Because you can explain so much of the Bible away that you end up not really believing anything anymore anyway. And it, so it's very popular among liberal Christians to believe in the doctrine of annihilationism. And this is what they'll say. It's called the second death. That means you'll cease to exist. Okay, so, and you know, as we read in those verses, when you're cast into the lake of fire, that's called the second death. And so they say, well, it's the second death. So obviously you just cease to exist at that point. When they read the words second death in those verses, they just take that to mean that you stop existing at all. Okay, not just your body, but even your soul. It's burned up. It's gone forever. That believers are the ones who live forever in heaven. But for unbelievers, they just basically stop existing. Now, that's a nice thought, I guess, but it misunderstands what the Bible means whenever it uses the word death. So what does death mean in the Bible? Well, death means separation, okay? Death does not mean the end of existence. Death means separation. The first death is the separation of the soul and the body. The second death is separation of the soul and God. So therefore, just because it's called the second death, that does not imply that it means you cease to exist. All that it implies is a separation. So here's how you would counter, give a counter argument to that. You'd say, if someone uses the term second death to teach annihilationism, you would just say, well, we know someone doesn't cease to exist at the first death, so why would they cease to exist at the second death? Here's another uh, objection that people will put forward toward the doctrine of eternal hell. They say that hell isn't loving. It's often phrased this way. I cannot believe a loving God would torture his creation forever and ever. That's the way that you often hear it phrased. So I want to respond to it in that way. Um, because you hear the word torture come up a lot in debates about hell. And I would, I would just make this point. This is not something I would spend all day arguing over. It's kind of a vernacular thing. It's kind of a word choice thing, but I would say technically it's not torture. It's torment. And here's the, here's the, why that's important. The slight difference in those two words is that God is not actively involved in inflicting pain on lost souls for forever and ever. God drops them into the lake of fire. I don't know that he ever even thinks about them again. I don't know that any any of us do either. They're dropped into the, into the lake of fire to be forgotten about and never never thought of again, you know, quite frankly. Um, that's a difference in torment and torture. God's not actively torturing the people there. Years ago, um, when I worked for a Christian radio station, we had this preacher on the air, and he was a local guy, and, and kind of kind of, I guess, what you might call a hate preacher. You know, at first, he just seemed like this really gentle guy, like his messages were were pretty good, but then all of a sudden, um, he just started really going off into some bizarre 
and in, in mean-spirited messages, I would say. Um, like in one of them, he was talking about how God was gleefully roasting people in hell and stoking the flames. And, and you know, we ended up actually having to take him off the radio because he just kept making God sound really sadistic <laughs> and, and dark and evil. Um, you know, for, honestly, that's just the way he was making God sound. Like when you talk about how God's down in heaven stoking the flames, you know, to torment people even more, that sounds more like torture. But I don't think that's a proper characterization of, of hell or, or God's relationship to it. I think a better word is torment, not torture. Because um, they're just placed there, and it is an unpleasant place, to you know, to put it mildly. But God's not actively down there continuing to try to inflict pain on them. That's not my understanding from anything I read in the Bible. Now, second, uh, let me go back to the original statement. People will say, I cannot believe a loving God would torture his creation forever and ever. Now, second, I would agree that eternal hell is not an attribute of love. I would actually agree with that. Um, Rob, Rob Bell, you know, he's one of these liberal theologians who's basically apostatized now. But he wrote a book against hell a few years back. This is like 10 years ago. But he wrote a book called Love Wins. Now, I even remember I was had graduated college, or maybe this was like towards the end of my college career or whatever. Um, but one of my college friends, I remember visiting his apartment, and he showed me he had like a Time magazine at his house. And he's like, hey, you should read this. You know, this pastor is being interviewed and he's revealing that there's actually no hell. And now me, I was still, you know, as a dumb college student, but you know, I had been a Christian my whole life. I'm kind of like, well, that, I don't know if (laughs) that's like some new thing that some guys just like discovered that there's no hell. You know, I kind of, that, that's, that sent a little bit of an alert signal to my antenna. But my friend who was not a Christian, you know, he's just like, oh, wow, this is mind-blowing stuff. There's actually not a hell. So anyway, I read the article, and this guy, Rob Bell, his, you know, is the pastor in this article. He's, he's going through all these Bible passages and basically just explaining them away. Okay, on one of them, Rob Bell said that when Jesus was warning us about the fires of hell, that, you know, when he was talking about that, hell was just the name of this junkyard in ancient Israel where they burned their trash and, and, you know, and ba- Jesus was just basically saying that you don't want your dead body to be thrown into a junkyard. Now, that's a reference to Gehenna. And we explained about what that is back in episode 36 of the podcast. So I won't go into all that again. But, you know, that's Jesus was using a junkyard, that Gehenna place. He was using it as a metaphor for the what the real hell is like. You know, talking about the fires of Gehenna. He was talking about the using that as a metaphor to to teach the torment of hell, not to explain away. So anyway, Rob Bell, he wrote this, this book against hell and he called it love wins because his whole thesis was that a loving God just can't be reconciled with the doctrine of eternal hell. So this is something that a lot of people bring up when they're arguing against a hell, uh, when they're arguing against the doctrine of eternal hell. They say, well, a loving God wouldn't create a place like that. So I have to point out this in response. Because I agree, it's not an attribute of love to send someone to hell forever. But God is not just a God of love. God is also a God of justice. And hell is justice. Hell is what the Bible says that people deserve for their sins. I I feel like i got to stop for a minute because that's a hard pill to swallow. God is not just a God of love. He's also a God of justice. And the Bible teaches that hell is the just punishment. It's the fair punishment for our sins. 
Now, if you're saying, for my sins, they are so bad they could send me to hell forever, how could that be? Let me explain this. Um, the illustration I often use is, you know, just imagine you're telling your grandma that you love her, okay? Because telling your grandma that you love her, that's a nice thing to do. Maybe you're driving by your grandma's house and you see her sitting on her porch. So you roll down your window and you're like, hey, grandma, love you, grandma. You know, that'd be a nice thing to do. But I want you to just also imagine a scenario like this. Imagine your grandma's getting mugged on the street and you drive by and you roll down your window and you say, hey, just want you to know, I love you, grandma. And then you turn to the mugger and say, by the way, I love you too. And then you drive off. If you did that, that would make you a pretty rotten grandson or, or granddaughter, right? <laughs> if, you, if that's your response to seeing your grandma get mugged, just to stop and be like, hey, just want to let you know I love you guys. And then roll your window back up and drive off. Not such a great grandkid, okay? If you are so loving that your lovingness prevents you from holding people to account for their actions, guess what? That love is pretty useless. No one cares how much you love your grandma and love the mugger if you're not going to do anything to stop what the mugger is doing. If you're just so full of love that you can't hold anybody to account, that's pretty useless love. We would say that's not even real love at all, right? And the God that we serve, the God in heaven, the real God, he is a God of love, but he's also a God of accountability, a God of justice, a God of love who isn't also a God of accountability. That would be a pretty useless God. But thankfully, we don't have a God like that. We have a God of love who is also a God of justice. Now, if you like Jesus, if you like, like him, you know, if you find Jesus to be very loving, one thing that you have to do is reckon with the fact that Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. One-fourth of all of his messages, they contain some kind of warning about hell. So if you believe in Jesus, you want to believe in hell as strongly as he does. And that's what I really like to tell a lot of these liberal theologians who think, think that hell is just a problem to be explained away. If you love Jesus, you need to be as concerned about what he said as he was. You know, one of the problems with people who can't accept hell as a fair penalty for their sins, is that we just don't comprehend how bad our sins actually are. You know, our brains can't see the gravity of how bad our sinfulness is. So we just want to excuse it. Like we have a hard time, it's really hard to believe that hell is a just punishment for our actions. Even if you kind of know that mentally, like I know that, you know, logically, or, or you know, because I, I trust what the Bible says, because I believe that God is fair, that Hell must be what I deserve for my sins. Well, you know what? I don't think anyone on this planet would actually want to send themselves to hell, even knowing how, that our sins are bad enough to deserve it. No, 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 but I don't think any of us would would consign ourselves to hell willfully, right? But we're not the judge. God is. And And if hell was not a fair punishment for our sins, God wouldn't prescribe it. But he's a fair God. And he understands these things better than we do. I think someday we'll get to heaven. We're going to understand how bad our sins actually were. But, you know, down here on earth, we're, we're still sinful and, and, you know, not not fully redeemed yet. We can be saved, but, you know, our um, we're still in the flesh. And so we, we can't fully comprehend how bad our own sinfulness is. I want you to know something. God is so much more merciful than us. 
you know, most people hearing that God sends people to, to hell for forever, they might say, well, God isn't more merciful than me because I would never create a place like hell. But if we could see how good the holiness of God is, and if we could see how bad the wickedness of sin is, we wouldn't be questioning whether hell was fair. I think what we would be saying is, God, why would you ever send your son to come down and die for people like that? They deserve to be tormented forever. You know, but we don't say that because we don't understand how bad sin is, and we don't understand how holy God is. So it's hard for us to see that we truly deserve hell for our sins. So just remember, if hell was not a fair punishment for our sins, God wouldn't prescribe it in the first place. He does it because he's a fair God. By the way, if any of you know Marty Sampson, please send this podcast to him. Okay, objection number three. Sometimes people say, how can someone who lives for a finite amount of time pay an infinite amount of sins? I'll say that one more time. How can someone who lives for a finite amount of time pay an infinite amount of sins? Because we live for 70 to 80 years on average. Um, in America, the average that people live is 77.8 years. So how can someone who lives for a specific amount of time on this earth and therefore can only commit a limited amount of sin during that time, how then could that person be made to suffer in hell for an infinite, unlimited amount of time? Now that's a pretty good question, but it misunderstands the relationship between a crime and how long someone must pay for that crime, right? If you shoot and kill someone, that murder might take five seconds, okay? Let's say you spent a week thinking it up, like thinking up how you wanted to do it, how you wanted to kill this person. Well, you could end up going to prison for the rest of your life, even though you only spent a week on the murder or only five seconds to do it. You could go to prison the rest of your life. It doesn't really matter how long it took to commit the crime to determine how long you're going to pay the price for it. You know, most crimes don't take that long to commit, but they can carry very lengthy prison sentences, right? But still, I know, hell, eternity, it's such a long time. So we say, well, how could that be fair? How could it be fair to go to hell for her forever for a limited amount of sins? Well, I just want you to imagine something for a minute. Imagine if I threw a snowball at you, okay? Just imagine, you know, we're, you're walking down the street, it's, it's winter, white ground, and you get hit in the face with a snowball, okay? Because I threw it at you. What's going to happen to me? Well, you'll probably throw a snowball back or something, <laughs> or you might get mad at me or, or whatever. You probably can't do too much about a snowball. Now imagine for a minute a police officer is walking down the street, and I throw a snowball at him, smack him right in the face with a snowball. Well, good grief, that's a little bit worse. Now I might be threatened with arrest. He could arrest me for, like, you know, if he wants to, call it assaulting an officer or something. It's a little bit more serious consequences than throwing a snowball at a random person. Now imagine it's the president of the United States, and I throw a snowball at him. Well, think of how seriously that's going to be taken, okay? I'll probably be arrested by the Secret Service, thrown in jail, maybe even thrown in prison. You know, depending on who's president, he might even tweet about me. So here's the principle I'm getting at. The punishment is more severe depending on the person being sinned against. Okay? Now, we might say a snowball is not that big of a deal. But if I throw a snowball in your face, you know, 
You might have a few words to say about that, even if it's just a snowball. You wouldn't like that very much. If I throw a snowball at my wife's face, now I've really got another thing coming. If I throw a snowball into the Queen of England's face, those guards with the big red hats and the bayonets, they're probably going to come chasing after me. And that would still be probably a better fate than, than whatever my wife would do. Well, our sins against God, they are so much higher than anything that we can imagine. Because God is so much higher than anything we can imagine. Our God is of unlimited and infinite importance. And so when we sin against God, our sins carry an unlimited, infinite penalty. Our sins against God are way worse than if you sin against the President of the United States. And you know what? We've done a lot worse things than toss a snowball at God. So when people say, how can someone who lives for a finite amount of time pay for an infinite amount of sins? I'd say it's because we sinned against an infinite God. Okay, objection four. Uh, talking about eternal destruction. Because despite all this, you know, some people, they really believe the Bible teaches annihilationism, and they, and they say this. I don't think the Bible teaches that hell is eternal. I think it teaches annihilationism because sometimes Jesus referred to hell as eternal destruction. So they say that, you know, destruction means you'll be deconstructed, and then no longer existing, all right? So I want you to notice in the verses that, you know, eternal destruction is a phrase that Jesus would use sometimes, but I want you to notice in the verses that we read from Revelation that the Antichrist and the false prophet, they were thrown into the lake of fire, and Satan was thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. So a thousand years go by, and then God lifts up the lid to the lake of fire to throw Satan in, and it says the Antichrist and the false prophet were still in there. Okay, verse 10 again. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Also, if you look at Revelation 14, starting at verse 9, it says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So Revelation, that's one of the places where it's talking about people who took the mark of the beast. That If you do that, there's no second chance after that. Like, you, you are going to hell. You know, there's no, there's no salvation for someone who takes the mark of the beast. Um, that it's talking about that right there. And I think, you know, as you read this though, as you're reading about what the lake of fire is like, I think God is trying to be just abundantly clear what will happen to those people who end up in hell. I think God is doing his very best to make sure that there is no mistake, no miscommunication about it. And even still, people will try their darndest to take any reading of a verse on hell and they will stretch it to try to make it teach annihilationism instead. You know, I've heard people say, well, it, well, it says the smoke of their torment goes on forever and ever. It doesn't say their torment actually goes on forever and ever. And I'm like, did you read the part where it says there's no rest day or night? <laughs> you know, how can you have no rest day or night if you don't exist? So here's a, here's a good rule of thumb for whenever you're debating someone and you're being absolutely clear or, you know, on a Bible topic, you're trying to say that the Bible is absolutely clear but they still won't accept what it says. Just ask them this, say, okay, 
if you don't believe that this is what the Bible is saying, what would it have needed to say in order to convince you? Okay, so you say to someone, if you don't think the Bible is teaching eternal conscious torment and hell, then what would it have needed to say in order to convince you? And, when, you know, the truth is, there is nothing that the Bible could have added in to convince them. They have already made up their mind. They're just going to reject what the Bible clearly says. There's nothing it could have said, okay? And, and something else to mention, there's a lot of discussion on the subject of hell about whether the hellfire is literal fire or if it's symbolic fire, okay? Like, they'll say maybe it's just a metaphor for something else. Well, I'm going to say this. You should hope that it's literal fire. Because whenever the Bible uses a physical object as a symbol to express a spiritual reality, the spiritual reality is always a lot more real and a lot more extreme than what the symbol is. Okay, so if it's not literal fire, it's actually something much worse than literal fire. So I would point that out too. Whenever someone tries to say, well, you know, the fires of hell, that's probably just a metaphor for something else. Okay, well, if, if that's so, whatever it's a metaphor for is going to be much worse than actual fire. All right? So that doesn't really get you out of the problem of, like, explaining away hell. Okay. Here's another objection people point out or say. They'll tell you that believing in hell is narrow-minded. Isn't it narrow-minded to say that you have the right way to heaven? And everyone else is going to hell. And this is what trips people like Rob Bell and Marty Sampson up. They think that Christians, and, and Jesus and God, by the way, they think that, they, that Christians are too narrow-minded because we say there is one specific way to go to heaven, that it's the way, the truth, and the life, which is Jesus. Because yes, we do say Jesus is the way, not a way. He's the way. Every other way leads to hell. That's what Jesus himself said. But is that narrow-minded? Okay, is that narrow-minded to say something like that? Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. Let's say I'm giving directions from my church to the city library, okay? And I say, you go down 7th Street and Schifferdecker Road, and then you turn left at Schifferdecker and go north about eight or nine blocks until you come to Perkins, and then you can pull into the parking lot there on the left. Okay, so let's just say you give them some specific directions— of how to get to the library, and, and, they, and they respond this way. Well, you know, I think that's kind of narrow-minded. I, I think I want to turn right at Schifferdecker and then drive, drive down that south for 20 blocks and then turn right, and I just want to go to the library that way because I think all roads lead to the city library, and I want to get there driving down whatever road I want. Well, if someone said that, that would be stupid, right? <laughs> you, you can't get to the library following whatever road you want. If Schifferdecker and Perkins is the way, you have to get there by going to Schifferdecker and Perkins. Now, heaven is the same way. There's one path. And that's not narrow-minded, that's just being specific. Okay, if you want to call that narrow-minded, well then fine, okay? I'm very narrow-minded when it comes to right and wrong. Like, if there's one right way to do something, and all the other ways are wrong, then I'm not going to be open-minded about how to do the thing. I want to do it the right way. I'll be narrow-minded about that. And when it comes to going to heaven and avoiding hell, what Jesus said is straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life. 
and there are few that find it. Well, we'll close down in a few minutes with um, a little bit more application of this study. But first, let me just ask, do you like fake news? If not, then you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that show, we look at the past week of news stories through kind of a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories. Now, I say the past week. Uh, lately, I've been doing it like like once a month, partially because news has kind of slowed down during the summertime and it'll probably pick back up again in the fall. Also, I've just had to take this little bit of a break as my life, I've been kind of reshuffling some things in my life. And so I've taken a little break from the podcasting, took a month off from this one. I'm glad to be back now, but um, the the fake news podcast, it's also taken a little bit of a break. So anyway, if you like hearing about current events and news or fake news or laughing at fake news, then you'll want to go join in with that one. I try to put episodes of that one out on Fridays uh, whenever I possibly can. So if you have a question on this chapter, just leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Now, next time on this podcast, we'll be back in the book of Ezekiel again. I've already recorded that episode, actually. It's going to be called Spiritual Bankruptcy. And that's where we're going to wrap up chapter 11 of Ezekiel. So make sure you tune back in for that one. And then on the episode after that, I'm working on um, an episode. I think it'll be the next one after that. I'm thinking I'll call it Five Myths About Temptation. So that's that's what I'm planning to talk about two episodes from now. Um, so anyway, that's what's, that's what's coming up. Uh, but I want to close today's podcast with a story. And this is actually a news story, but it's from more than 20 years ago. So it reads like this. For three days... Coolidge Winnesett, 75 years of age, sat mired in the five-foot hole of a partially collapsed outhouse, yelling for help and trying to cope with the stench. So this story actually happened in the year 2000, and there was a man who was literally still using an outhouse. All right, he, he was heading out, I guess, as his routine every day, or probably several times a day, heading out there to use it when... Many years of wood rotting caused it to break away and it dropped him into a pit full of years worth of, of his own filth. Um, if you understand what I mean by filth. And this is what he said. I tell you what, it was hard to even get one breath down there. Winnesett is a World War II veteran and a retired janitor. And so he's been down there for days. And then a mail carrier named Jimmy Jackson noticed that Coolidge's mail had been building up. So he went to look for him. Then he saw the old man's crutch leaned against the outhouse, and he walked over to investigate. That's when he heard the cries for help. Winnesett says, Down it went and took me with it. I thought it was an earthquake. Then I realized where I was at. I'd done a lot of hollering, but nobody seemed to hear me. But someone finally did. It was a mailman, a man carrying a message, who came to Winnesett's rescue. Well, we have a message. There are people in the outhouse, in a pit, covered in filth. And they need our message so that we can save them. The article said at the start, Coolidge Winnis at 75 said, there is only one way to describe what it was like being trapped for almost three days at the bottom of his Southwest Virginia outhouse after its floor gave way. 
He said, I compare it to the Bible's hell. And the real hell would still be worse than that. But one last objection I've heard people make in regards to hell, and this is objection number six for today, if you've been keeping count. The last objection that some people make is this. They say, why didn't God make another place for souls besides hell? And the answer to that is, he did. It's called heaven. We are all eternal beings. Every person you see is an eternal being. And we all have an eternal destiny. The lake of fire is the destiny of the devil, the fallen angels, the antichrist, the false prophet, those who take the mark of the beast, the wicked dead, and most of the people that you know. But if we can do the job of a mailman, maybe we can get some more of those people in heaven. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that you can be a mailman. Thank you.